Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily email newsletter with a podcast that goes out to paid subscribers Monday to Friday in which I look at what's happening in the political economy in Aotearoa, New Zealand and the rest of the world with a focus on housing, unaffordability, climate change in action and child poverty reduction. Today I wanted to look at a survey that has come out overnight from OneChoice. It's a housing trends survey of over 1,100 New Zealanders aged 18 and over in mid-April, in which it asks some qualitative questions in a way through an online survey, uh, which is nationally representative, uh, about how people feel about housing affordability and their futures. And what it found is that 77% of people surveyed think that home ownership is now unaffordable. And that 61% think it's going to get worse over the next decade. It found 55% uh, were anxious day to day about ever buying their first home. And 46% believed their chances of ever owning a home were hopeless. What this says is that just over half of those surveyed believe the Kiwi dream, as it's defined by the survey, of owning your own home, beginning to start a family, was no longer attainable in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And that over 60% of those people who are still renting now recall that 10 years ago they thought they would own their own home by now. What that says is an entire generation of young New Zealanders have given up on the dream of home ownership because of what's happened with house prices in the last 20 to 30 years overall, but in particular, the 45% rise in house prices seen during COVID. Now, we know that prices have fallen about 6-7% from their peak in November, but what in effect happened during COVID was the Reserve Bank decided it had to print $55 billion to buy government bonds, which in effect lowered longer-term interest rates and made fixed mortgage rates, particularly the longer-term ones, cheaper. That in turn pushed up the value of house prices and the value of household wealth held by homeowners in what it called at that point uh, an attempt to boost the economy with a wealth effect, i.e. people feeling wealthier going out and spending money. Effectively, the Reserve Bank chose to pump up the economy, to support the economy after the COVID shock by making rich people much richer, with the hope that they would spend three cents in every extra dollar in wealth to boost the economy. At the same time, it also removed LVR restrictions, which had repressed house price inflation over the previous eight years. And the combination of that saw house prices rise 45%. That has blown out of the water any chance for the current generation of young renters in even hoping that they might be able to own a home in the next 10 to 20 years. Now, some people look at the current fall in house prices and say, ah, well, they just have to wait for a bit and they'll be fine. In fact, There are a good half of those people who are still aspiring to own their own home who are hoping that if they wait, house prices will come back to them. 
But as we've seen, the Reserve Bank and other banks are forecasting only a 15% fall peak to trough in house prices, and that essentially homeowners will be able to keep about 20 to 30% increase in house prices since the beginning of COVID. And we're still seeing house prices at multiples of eight, nine times income. That compares with what most people think of as affordable as three to four times income and where house prices were in New Zealand back in the early 2000s. So what we have here is an entire generation who've given up on home ownership. And a quarter of them say they are delaying having their families because they are still hoping for or are waiting or are working to try to afford a deposit to be able to buy and own a own home, particularly in the cities where there are jobs that they want to do, the big cities of Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch mainly. And this is an interesting social challenge for New Zealand, particularly in the context of what we're seeing at the moment between Australia and New Zealand's labour markets. So you might have heard that the Prime Minister is in Australia looking to tell businesses there and consumers there that New Zealand is open for business now. So there's an annual uh, Trans-Tasman Leadership Forum where business leaders from both sides of the Tasman get together and have a chat. And there was a speech yesterday in which the Prime Minister uh, talked up New Zealand. The Prime Minister is also there to try to uh, go into bat for New Zealand residents and citizens who are living in Australia and who aren't getting a very fair deal, not to mention the whole issue of the 501 uh, uh, convicts who are being sent back to New Zealand if they're New Zealand-born, even if they've got nothing to do with New Zealand. It's one of the reasons for the outbreak in gang violence we've seen in the last couple of years. So the Prime Minister is going to be going into bat for New Zealanders over there. She's unlikely to get much joy, to be frank, even on the 501s. But uh, one of the things that's developed over the last 20 or 30 years is that New Zealanders go to Australia and pay tax, but they don't get the benefits of other Australian taxpayers who are residents and citizens in that uh, they can't send their kids to universities uh, in a subsidised way. They don't often have access to the same medical services at the same costs. And, of course... uh, are um, unable to get access to some of the same welfare um, entitlements that Australians get and um, are also um, vulnerable, as we've seen, to, to being turfed out at the flick of a, uh, a, flick of a, um, a conviction. So uh, it's not particularly fair. They're a version of second-class citizens in Australia, but it's one of the reasons that makes people think twice before they jump the Tasman for the 30 to 40% increase in wages and now the often cheaper housing costs, particularly in the bigger cities. Because one of the big changes in the last two or three years is that, particularly in Wellington, but also to an extent in Auckland and Christchurch, rents have risen faster here than they have in Australia. And some parts, some CBD parts in Melbourne and Sydney over the last two or three years has actually been significant rent declines, which we haven't necessarily seen here yet in any great shape or form, particularly in Wellington. And it's interesting that uh, at the same 
speech where the Prime Minister uh, was arguing that we're open for business, uh, the CEO of ANZ in New Zealand, Antonia Watson, uh, made a call again for a release of restrictions on migration into New Zealand. And she was essentially saying that a, a lot of New Zealanders are leaving, up to 50,000 a year going to Australia, and she needed to essentially fill the gap left behind by New Zealand residents and New Zealand-born people leaving the country. We've got this constant flushing in and flushing out of flushing out of um, people who are connected to New Zealand, to families who are educated here, uh, in many ways would prefer to stay here but are going overseas because they can use their skills and get 30 to 40% higher pay and better opportunities. Many hope to come back, but many don't. And at the same time, we're flushing in lower paid, less connected workers, many of whom are on temporary visas, who are expected to be kicked out again after three months, creating what has been the most, the biggest temporary workforce in the OECD as a percentage of our total work, workforce. Before COVID, it was over 5%. And now we're having this debate about whether to open the taps again uh, on our model of high house prices, high and rising house prices, uh, that is funded in part by uh, relatively low wage migration of temporary workers, which keeps up demand for housing and keeps pressure on infrastructure and also um, allows businesses to continue on without having to invest because they can just add cheap labour at the top of the funnel. It's not a long-term solution for increasing wages and real wealth, but it certainly helps increase the uh, wealth of those who own homes. The point of what I'm saying here is that this model doesn't really work for those people who own homes if their kids leave. And they end up with a big portfolio of very expensive housing in New Zealand, some of which they may have to hand over to their kids, or maybe that's part of the plan is to hand it over, or to leverage it up to help their kids get in. Or they're going to have to jump on Skype and WhatsApp and maybe a plane every now and again to see their grandkids grow up. And I wonder whether this feeling of hopelessness, remember half of young renters now believe there is no hope that they could ever own their own home. This feeling of hopelessness accelerates the so-called brain drain or the surge of New Zealanders leaving the country. And whether the only power, the only leverage those people have in any political sense to actually force change, in particular to tax that unearned leveraged wealth increase from land prices, not to mention a capital gains tax, is to essentially say to the parents who own these homes, the baby boomers who own their homes, please change the rules and I'll be able to stay at home and you can watch your kids grow up, my kids grow up, your grandkids grow up. We'll see. I don't see any great um, chance of any change anytime soon, in part because the people in whose interests it would be to have that change are no longer in the country or won't be in the country. And once they leave, they often stop voting. So you're essentially seeing uh, a, a new democratic deficit develop as the people who would vote for change, not just to 
the tax rules, but also public investment and infrastructure to allow better housing supply leave the country. It's a tale of self-interest and smiting your nose to spite yourself in a political economic sense. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my dawn chorus for Wednesday, July the 6th. Kakita no.